It's the California Wine Country Podcast with Steve Jackson and Dan Berger. We taste, we laugh, we learn. It's time for California Wine Country, brought to you by Bottle Barn. Dan Berger, of course, and our guest today is uh, Nova Peril. That's Peril. right. We Peril. went through this last time. Peril, we Peril as in danger, right? <laughs> and as far as... Uh, Fapiano Wines goes, our uh, Italian expert who speaks fluently, <laughs> our L.A. producer, Christopher DiMatteo, sent me a text saying uh, the pronunciation, Fopiano is Italian, Fapiano is American, take your pick. Well, and there you I, go. Take I always pick. called Pete Fapiano, Fapiano. And then he would say Fopiano, and I finally started saying Fopiano. But mm-hmm. uh, we're going to go with Fapiano for Fapiano Vineyards. Mm-hmm. 125 years, you guys have been celebrating. You're celebrating. Right yeah, now. yeah, that's that's the milestone that um, is come around this summer. I think it, you know, back 1896 when the family, um, you know, came around, found the found the piece of land they wanted to purchase, and and uh, it was actually a, a pre-existing winery. So if you know if if you kind of dig a little bit deeper. You've got grapes being grown on that property for well over 125 years. Holy. Pretty, pretty special. Holy moly. Uh, by the way, Nova, give us uh, um, uh, more of a history as far as the winery itself and uh, what Fabiano's been doing in our area for so long. Yeah, well, the winery's located uh, right, at, right at the southern end of the city limits of, of Healdsburg. So if you're... Bopping along 101, if you're headed south, you get off uh, Old Redwood Highway. You um, jump on Old Redwood right there. On your left is the little nursery, Hillsburg Nursery. And then on your right, essentially, Fopiano Vineyards. And, uh, again, been making wine in, essentially in that, in that area since, since 1896. But we're really, you know, Russian River. So there's all sorts of uh, milestones along the way, you know, one of them being... Um, Hanging the winery, hanging its hat, so to speak, on Petit Syrah. It's been the varietal that the family has, you know, produced ever since the founding, and uh, we were the first winery to put uh, Petit Syrah on a label as a single varietal in, you know, 1964. Uh, along the way, uh, family members, uh, you know, drew the legal boundary for Russian River Valley. So you picture back then, uh, Russian River Valley as an appellation didn't exist. It was really Sonoma County, you know. They uh, they got the the nod the local nod from the government to go ahead and say okay, Louis Louis Fopiano go ahead and uh, you know figure out where the legal line is going to be and uh, if you think about it in retrospect of all the uh, extremely high quality and valuable and expensive wines and beautiful wines that are coming out of the area that that was a big decision you know <laughs> where, where to draw the line essentially between Dry Creek Valley uh, another appellation a bit warmer. And Russian River, that's more influenced by the by the fog and uh, the river itself. And so all along the way, you can imagine every every up and down, and uh, not to mention prohibition. You know, but getting through that. Yeah, which and, uh, <laughs> in the 1920s during prohibition, Fopiano uh, survived by selling home winemaking kits, which was. Uh, pretty much a done deal. A lot of different wineries did that, right? Because I guess that was illegal if you made wine at home. Well, I mean, illegal. I meant a, legal. The government passed a law after Prohibition was instituted that said that the homeowner could make 200 gallons each year 
without any charge and no tax. Right. And there were a lot of people who had no interest in it, but their neighbors were most interested in using their permits, so to speak. So there was mm-hmm. an awful lot of wine made in bathtubs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can just imagine scrambling. You know, n- knowing how difficult it is to, these days, if you t- take on a challenge, uh, you know, whether it's a, a new regulation or just being able to ship to a new state, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's so many rules in place. The idea that um, all of a sudden you're not allowed to make wine and you've got to scramble to uh, work with the harvest, uh, the coming harvest, you know, several years of prohibition, how, how you're going to continue making money, that must have been a real scramble. But, you know, being able to make wine, bathtub wine and uh, sacramental wine and ship, shipping grapes, you know, fresh grapes. It wasn't against a lot of grow grapes, so shipping grapes uh, by, by rail car. There's a lot of people who got sick in that period who needed to have their wine to get healthy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I so, was one of them back then. <laughs> so the, you know, it was, they, they found a way. And, you know, that we, we have some famous photographs of when um, the, winery, the winery was producing you know, more wine than was allowed. And if you come to the tasting room that we've got, uh, or on the website or anywhere, you probably just Google it. I mean, there's a very famous photograph of an IRS agent, or what we call now is an IRS. Back then, I think it was called a revenuer. Right. But uh, they were, they were, uh, Basically, standing at the outside of the winery and watching thousands, 100,000 gallons of wine flow down out of the winery door because it was being produced illegally. So, I mean, it's just (laughs) incredible, right, to try to imagine that – forget, like, the environmental impact of of that (laughs) scenario, right? But the idea that you're just going to say, okay, this wine was produced illegally, just – open the valves and, and let all the wine out and it's just going to fill the floor and fill the drains and spill out the doors and into the creek and and I mean uh, it just seems a little bit mind-boggling all the way around I mean and, and wasteful and environmentally degradative and all that so but that there's a, a, a fabulous photo of that exact scenario yeah. um, available to see it's really fun to look at yeah I'm looking at it different uh, time Dan Thoughts on Fopiano wine? I'm going back to Fopiano because uh, Nova's said it a few it's times. It's, it's whatever rolls off your tongue. Man. I know. <laughs> and, and Pete Fopiano used to say, Fopiano, Fopiano, I don't care. Right. Hey, the, uh, the winery has been around for so long that uh, it's not uh, too easy to identify what it does best because it makes so many wonderful wines. But historically... The Petit Syrah was, in fact, the most important uh, variety growing there. And part of the reason was that uh, Russian River Valley is cool, but not so cool at that northern end where you can actually get Petit Syrah ripe all the time. And those wines are sensational with bottle age. I have tasted when they're 30 years old, 35 years old, even older than that, and they, they really hang on. And what's really interesting is they have fruit all the way till the time you open them. It's a, it's a wonderful grape variety that people don't really pay very much attention to. It's a, really a resource. I've been at Fopiano for, uh, this will be my seventh vintage, I believe. So just getting to know the place. I, <laughs> I swear, it takes five years, five solid years, I think, at a winery to get to know the vineyards, the operation, the people, and... Um, Ironically, that's about the time that people move on. <laughs> you know, it's well, what's a, your it background? Can, can I mean, how did you become a winemaker? Well, you know, before that, I was the assistant winemaker at Dry Creek Vineyard. 
Very well-known wow. local, local, another local uh, family-owned no winery, 1972, established, Dave Stair. And uh, that's where I learned a lot of uh, Sauvignon Blanc production because, uh, of course, the Fumé Blanc from there is very popular, and Zinfandel's from Dry Creek Valley. Um, so that was a great tenure. That was seven years and worked with a lot of very talented people there. Before that, where I started my career was a small winery in the Santa Cruz Mountains called Mount Eden Vineyards on the ultra-premium side, but not pretentious, of course. A historic place, you know, founded by a man named Martin Ray, who uh, the name was purchased, and we know Martin Ray. When you drive out West County, you see the big water tower with Martin Ray. They actually purchased that name from them. Uh, Martin Ray was pretty instrumental in uh, label laws, so when he was producing wine in the 40s, he got very frustrated. I think you think he was a pretty honorary guy, but he got very frustrated with the idea that you could produce a Pinot Noir, a beautiful Pinot from, you know, Santa Cruz Mountains in that case, but any even Russian River, and, and it would just be labeled as Burgundy, you know, red Burgundy or something like that. So he was very instrumental actually in, in pushing through uh, label laws, and he learned everything that he knew, coincidentally, or you know, from Paul Masson. Paul Masson is a famous Champagne man. Sure. Um, from France, and he had a winery. It's it's now a music venue. Folks have probably been to Palmasson or the, the Mountain Winery. It's yeah, a, that was that was Palmasson's original winery. And Mount Eden is just to the hilltop to the north. That's where I worked. That's where I started my career. I know that area because I lived in. Uh, I did two terms in San Jose. That's what I call them <laughs> uh, in radio, and uh, been to the Masson. Uh, amphitheater, the, that yeah. music venue, many times. Yep, it's beautiful. Beautiful view, incredible view, and the the people they book, the top people traveling in the in the world. Yeah, you you get some great concerts there. It's just a great atmosphere. So it's it's Palmasan. It's the Mountain Winery. On the next hilltop to the north is is uh, Mount Eden, and the next stop is you know the world famous Ridge Montebello site. So right, right. we're in good company there. And that's where I started. I didn't go to school. I didn't. You I didn't, didn't go to UC wine. Davis or Fresno. No, or I'm a Cal Poly grad. I'm a Cal Poly oh, grad, okay. and uh, my my bachelor's is in. Uh, uh, ecology. So I was going to be a marine biologist was my plan. But uh, I ended up going to the master's program there in crop science, learned a little bit about viticulture, a little bit about winemaking. And that's really all I needed to get my foot in the door at uh, a, a very the very hands-on work environment at Mount Eden where I learned everything I needed to know, you know, and I just apply, apply those concepts uh, to the day-to-day. I feel very fortunate in a way that I haven't been handed a recipe you know i don't certainly don't want to say anything negative about the folks that are uh, you know learning viticulture and, and winemaking from a university but i feel like i have a certain degree of freedom that they might not be allowed <laughs> does that make sense right no it does <laughs> that it does. uh you know I, I i know what i can get away with it and that's really all i need to know <laughs> everything after that is just creativity and i, I think that the, i think I that, that really uh that really helps, and well, starting, allows me. Uh, starting your career at Mount Eden had yeah. to have been fortuitous because, uh, after all, that was an iconic property, still is, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Mount Eden has uh, a long, long history before you, and then following you uh, with Mary Edwards being a winemaker there at, later on, and then, and then your involvement, and then the continuing uh, contributions. Uh, that is a fabulous property to get your your feet wet in. Oh man, it, I, I think that if 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 that wine is available for someone to try. You know, it is the, it is the absolute definition of terroir-driven, varietal, uh, specific winemaking. I mean, there's no. I hadn't heard of any anything but adding yeast 
to to wine until once I had moved on there. That's all we ever did. And that, I think that there's really a lot of magic in that, being able to just add the yeast and 100% let the, let the vines and the climate, and which all culminates in the concept of terroir, you know, let that speak for itself. There's real magic there. If you can, if you can embrace it, there's real magic. Fopiano Vineyards, family-owned since... 1896, 125 years. Dan, talk more about Fopiano wines. Well, beyond the uh, Petit Syrah, what Nova has pioneered in a certain way is a kind of a revolution with his vineyard controls and his vineyard uh, management techniques to try to bring uh, the Fopiano wines up to a a more modern look. This uh, Sauvignon Blanc we're trying right now is very stylish, very dramatic, uh, has a real honest-to-goodness character. What I like about the wine more than anything else is the fact that it's not austere, but it's not simple. It really requires about two more years in the bottle, believe it or not, and most people will drink their Sauvignon Blancs right as they release, and boy, this wine is really set up to be beautifully developed in about two more years. Yeah. Beautiful color. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the wines in... in Dan has gotten to know the, the you know, we we're, we're really are a small estate winery. We have uh, about 150 acres right around the winery. Um, a couple acres are in fallow right now, but, you know, relatively small. We produce about 1,000 cases or less of each of these varietals that are 100% estate. And, you know, over the years, uh, Dan has gotten to know our, our wines really well. And he's right. that These wines actually will improve with age. Even even a variety like Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc is, you know, even folks I think that are really uh, in tune with with wines, uh, especially, you know, white wine Sauvignon Blancs, this is, in their opinion, is they're going to be showing their best, of course, when they're youthful. You know, there's a, there's a freshness, a refreshing, refreshing character there. But there's real depth that comes with age. And uh, I guess in more ways than one, right? <laughs> Not just wine. Yeah. It's, 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 no, it's true. You know, it's and, it, and a well-made wine uh, that can survive the youthful years. Again, another you know, the uh, it changes for the better. It all ends in the end. But you know, these wines will improve with age, even the Sauvignon Blanc. And I think on the last show, if I remember right, I think I brought like a a seventeen, eighteen, nineteen Sauvignon Blanc or something mm-hmm. like that. And the seventeen was tasting as good in its own way as the as the nineteen. So uh, that's that's part of the fun. That's getting back to the, you know, this is the place. Well, this is the wine. My experience starts with, uh, with a bottle of 73 that I lost in the cellar and <laughs> came back to about 15 years later, and I thought it was dead, and it turned out to be phenomenal. So <laughs> and you, and back in 73, you probably don't know this. You weren't there. And back in 73, they called that wine Sonoma Fume. <laughs> on the label. <laughs> I, 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 I sounds see, silly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've seen the label. I see we we still have a lot. Of, we have sh- we have Shannon Blancs. We have uh, uh, Sonoma Sonoma Blanc. Maybe it was Sonoma Fumé that that they have. Um, you know, they're the labels are still laying around, and we have full bottles. I mean, they're if they were cellared well, I'd be happy to give them a shot. This is a but 20, it's fun to look at them. Twenty twenty Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, this is a twenty twenty Sauvignon Blanc. And That's delicious. Right, thank yeah. you. Yeah, right, right now I'm getting like like Dan was saying. Right now I'm getting a little bit of tightness, a little bit of uh, need for expression. It, it it wants to jump out of the glass, but it's not quite there yet. But 
the 19, for example, um, did you have the kit? I did. Talking I about, did. Uh, so Fopiano um, is a small segue into for the 120th anniversary, 125th anniversary, we're doing a kit with all these different vintages. And the reason I thought of it was because um, one of the kits was sent to Dan as being a wine writer. And in there was a 2019 Sauvignon Blanc. It's a mini bottle of the 2019. And uh, it showed more character, more depth, I think, than this wine. But it also showed how this wine is headed in that direction, I think. Hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan of aging. So you're saying anything. two years. Well, I think Dan I think, Lay It Down Burgers yes, says sir, two but, years. But I think two years for this wine, for most people, for me, it would be five. Because I really like well, of to course. push the envelope on these things, and I think they get more character that way. As your, your point is well taken, uh, Nova. If it's if it's an older wine, it's got wisdom. It's it it has more character. It has mm-hmm. more interest because of what Mother Nature. Now, you, the winemaker has to build this into the wine. This doesn't just happen, right? No, that's true. That's true, and 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 it's easy for the winemaker to take credit for for doing that and when it ends up happening it, it's fun to do <laughs> but really the the quality's got to be in the fruit and that gets back again to the, to anyone who's dealing with really high quality fruit should be able to produce a wine that um can be enjoyed you know and i just from my point of view i feel lucky that you know the the stuff that i have to choose from is really fantastic. I mean, the Sauvignon Blanc vines, you guys, the audience has seen them all, even if they didn't know them or not. If you're driving down 101, headed south, right over the Russian River, they're right there on your right. They're old vine-looking Sauvignon Blanc. Um, I think they're the oldest Sauvignon Blanc vines in Sonoma County, planted in 1969 and 1970. Hmm. So, um, you know, I'm happy to hear of older vineyards out there, but honestly, I think they're the oldest ones. And... Those vines just, uh, they produce very little fruit for the acre, but the quality is uh, hard to match. It delivers all the Sauvignon Blanc character, you know, lemon limes and, and lemon grass and all those fabulous flavors that everyone loves, plus just a little extra depth that just doesn't come unless you've got, you know, age. Dan, quickly uh, tell me what you're tasting in this young Sauvignon Blanc from Well, I'm Fopiano. getting a very faint hint. First of all, I think there's a little teeny bit of sort of lemon oil or maybe a trace of lime, but also a little teeny bit of sort of a figgy component, like a fresh fig character. Huh. And when you combine that with a little bit of aeration, if, if I were to have this bottle on my in my dinner table... I would decant this and let the air open it up a little bit more, and that would give it a little bit more of that that waxy component that is not really evident just yet when it's this cold and yeah, decanting instead of laying it down for yeah. two to five years. Yeah, you just the, just splash it around and and let the wine open up through air, and that really improves the aromatic. Uh, per, uh, personality of the wine, and it, this wine is a wine of personality, but it doesn't show. As soon as, because one of the problems you have with this wine, which is a great, great benefit, by the way, it's screw capped, which means that it's going to be protected from oxygen until you finally open it up. But when you do, it really wants to get some air. Okay, makes mm-hmm. sense to me. California Wine Country with Dan Berger, brought to you by Bottle Barn. And Nova Perel is here. He is the winemaker at Fopiano, uh, celebrating. 
50 years? Close, yeah. 125. 125. Yeah. No, uh, you guys do some time. great work, and you do too, my friend. Let's talk Thank about Fopiano being open for uh, outdoor tastings. Uh, how does that work? Wine tasting these days isn't quite what it used to be, even before the pandemic. I mean, people have been attracted to wine tasting uh, coming up from the city or wherever. And so calling ahead is, has been you know, a good idea historically. But... Now, uh, calling ahead is, is, is just optional. Actually, we're, we're open uh, uh, for outdoor tasting. Inside, I think, is available. You know, if we've, oh, inside. Uh, well, you know, you, we follow the normal <clears throat> mask protocols sure, and, and whatever sure. whatever's required. Uh, but it's, it's been beautiful. The weather's been great. It's, it's nice to be outside. We've got shade, uh, beautiful views. And, uh, it's, yeah, wonderful it's re- views. It's, it's right there. I mean, it's, it's really kind of... Um, it's, it's not off the beaten path. It feels like it is, in a way, because uh, you know it's 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 the same historic place, and I think there's there's a lot to be said with that character. I, I appreciate it. I enjoy going going somewhere and and not get overloaded with uh, the what I guess you could call the pretentious character. I mean, I I don't I know that the wine wine is a fabulous thing, and people want to embrace it and take it to the next level. And I I, I like that as much as the next person. But also being able to enjoy a wine uh, in a, in a relaxed atmosphere is is also appealing. All right, and again, quickly tell everyone where to find a Fopiano Winery. The tasting room is right off Old Redwood Highway. Um, the address I happen to have in my head is twelve seven zero seven, but I don't think there's even a Address labeled. I mean, everyone just drives yeah. by the winery. And just right. She's right. uh, Fopiano. So just get off Old Redwood Highway, right south, uh, right right when you go over the Russian River on the bridge, and uh, hop onto Old Redwood. And I would bet um, you're at least half the folks in your audience, if not all of them, unless they're out of town, have uh, at least driven by the Fopiano Winery at least once in their life. There's, uh, it, it's just one of the mainstays of town. It's an unhurried stretch of road. Yeah. Fopiano.com, F-O-P-P-I-A-N-O, of course. I think we're into the Chardonnay now. Dan, you've tasted this. I, I'm a big fan of, of this Chardonnay because it is from a cool region, but not from such a cool region that you can't make both styles of wine in the same bottle. A little bit leaner in the aftertaste, a little bit richer in the nose and in the mid palate. Oh, so the you've nose got is little, lovely. What yeah. year is this? This is a 2020. So this wow. is this is not it quite really released is. yet. Really, right on the edge of, of release. And you know, th- this wine, this the Chardonnay that comes off the estate, and you certainly have to give credit to Paul Fopiano, who's our vineyard manager and fifth generation, of course. Um, you know, the as I said earlier, you know the quality comes from the fruit there's really just no denying that you can you can uh, you know talented people talented winemakers can produce uh, drinkable wine from low quality grapes but really if you start with high quality fruit all you have to do is not screw it up you know that, that's, that's, that's the so trick many of the wi- trade <laughs> so many winemakers have said that so has dan over yeah. all these years on and, this. And, and you know it's not that it's easy to to shuttle fruit from the vine to the bottle, there's a lot of tricks, and not, not tricks, but a lot of details to pay attention to all along the way. And, you know, I've always thought to myself, really, really, you can only make the wine worse. Every step you take, you know, the, the vine has you know, loaded with clusters and ready to go. Once, once you snip those clusters, every step you take can only be a linear 
uh, quality movement. Yeah, Every well, step you take can step down. You can never really step it up. Man, this is a, a baby Chardonnay, and I, I think it tastes wonderful. Well, my, my comment earlier about both styles of wine in one, you've got a little teeny bit of Burgundian character in the nose, mm. and then in the mid-palate, you've got this brilliant bright fruit. So you've got brightness and complexity in the same bottle. And depending on when you consume it, if you buy a few bottles now, open one now, you'll you'll sense the, the, the fruit. But if you wait another year or two, you're going to get more complexity. So or this is really an interesting... Decant it for oh, a couple yeah, hours absolutely. tonight. Put it in a decanter right away, in fact. But mm-hmm. smell it as soon as you pour it in a decanter and then watch it change in the glass. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's quite an experiment to, to you know, introduce wine to air. It really does uh, bring out a lot. But one thing you mentioned, Dan, that I want, the, the funny thing... It, as as winemakers and folks that know a lot of you know that you know play with wine quite a bit, people talk about Burgundian style, you know Chardonnay wise, and I'm not sure if you know the average person even really knows what what a Burgundian style no, wine is. You uh, know? Uh, most of the people, except all the wine people who are listening to the right. show and do yeah. every Wednesday, yeah. most of our audience. Yeah, they hear Burgundian and they go, I don't know what. Yeah, what Burgundian. Like so, so let me give my version and then you can correct me. So, like you know, Burgundy is a region in France, so it's also a color. But uh, first, it was a region in uh, a Burgundy uh, coming from France is a Pinot Noir, but there's also a white Burgundy which is Chardonnay. And and many many years ago, many decades and hundreds of years ago, they matched up. Uh, the right varietal with the right region in France, and uh, so they have a little bit more strict rules of what they can grow where. But they have a whole—it's—it's fa- it's a fascinating subject to look at what's what what is growing and what style is being produced from Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and and, and others. But um, Burgundian style is, uh, from what I understand, when I think Burgundian style whites, anyways, is uh, juice that's. Uh, you know, you, you harvest your clusters. You, you snip your clusters, right? <laughs> and then you, no. you, you, you <laughs> please, you, you, uh, you, you throw it in the, you know, you, you get, you extract the juice. So you're, you're going to throw it in the crusher, or you're going to whole cluster press it, and you're going to get juice. And then that juice is uh, then put in barrel directly. So, so you've got uh, juice that's fresh going right into barrel, and it's fermented in barrel. Uh, Generally, that's 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 what I think of with with Burgundian style, and because it's barrel fermented, it's going to be uh, uh, there's going to be a malolactic fermentation and a lot of lees contact because of the fer- again you have uh, the yeast are going the yeast are going to multiply uh, by the bazillions really, uh, and then uh, produce a nice little layer of, of yeast which gives the bread character. So if you have a, a glass of wine, uh, a Chardonnay that's Burgundian style, it's going to be something like. Uh, you're gonna get some a little bit of fruit, a little bit of oak aroma, a little, uh, and then uh, palate-wise, it's gonna be very voluptuous, viscous, you know, almost oily, uh, oak character, uh, balance of acid, oak, and fruit, um, and that lees character. It's bread. Does that sound realistic, Dan? Pretty much, yeah. Although sound? this wine is so young, you're not getting any of that just yet, but it will mm-hmm. get there. And that—that's that, a synopsis of, of what what you think of a burgundy white, or in this particular case, I'm getting uh, a note that I used to call onion skin, but in this case, it's not quite oniony as much as it is more of the 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 sort of wet stone component. 
Mm-hmm. And that underlying character is fascinating. Now, the Zinfandel you brought, that's a whole, that, there's, there's no question that's a California wine. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, the Zin, you know, we brought, uh, I brought four, I think I got four, four different vintages of Zinfandel. There, we're, we're uh, you know, we'll taste them off the air probably once it, there's not enough time in the day to taste them all, but. Uh, well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, time on the air. Time on the air. That's what I meant. Give me a shot of the 19, which yeah. is, to me, one of the most miraculous of the wines. Yeah, the, you know, so w- Russian River Valley is just not known for Zinfandel. You know, it's Zinfandel historically or in the past, I, I keep on saying historically, but really in the past or in, in not so distant past, Zinfandel is is Dry Creek Valley, it's Alexander Valley, it's Foothills, it's Paso Robles, um, but perfectly good Zinfandels, and in my opinion, um, more complex Zinfandels are coming out of the Russian River Valley because uh, there's plenty of sunshine, especially in the northern portion of the valley, you know, where we are, coincidentally, uh, but we also get the cooling influence from the river, so really we have a big advantage there because we got plenty of sunshine and the cool, and it really that brings, uh, in my opinion, anyways, brings on a lot of complexity. So the zins we're tasting have a, a little bit of red raspberry and a little bit of blueberry and blackberry, but um, they're not the the big jammy zin that um, hopefully is falling out of favor a little bit. I think for a while there, Zinfandels were. Just a little too alcoholic, a little too sweet, a little I agree. too dark. Slap you in the face. Yeah. I, in yeah. fact, I, I've not. I've become not a big Zinfandel fan because of that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, the nineteen is not that style. No, when I taste a good one, yeah. I yeah. adore it. This but is the one. Yeah, and so so that's what we're you know being Russian River. We are not uh, producing wines that are. Zinfandels, we're not producing any wines, but but certainly not Zinfandel that is this is of that character. Really, we get. So it's just a little bit more elegant, a little bit more complex. I refer to it in, in my own head, anyways, as the the connoisseurs in right. This is not the beginner's Zinfandel. It's not the sweet, uh, easy to drink Zinfandel. This is more connoisseur style, and uh, in a loving way, I mean that. And I think that um, Zinfandel. There's a reason why Zinfandel is one of the first and main varietals in California. It's a, it's it's a fabulous grape. It is uh, versatile in many ways. It could, you know. Honestly, I think I heard somewhere originally it was a table grape, but because it's so flavorful off the vine, it really is. It really is amazing, and it's one of the few um, vinifera, Vitis vinifera. That's the scientific name for uh, wine grapes. It's one of the few vinifera varietals that is productive in its second bud. So, pre-frost protection. So in the, no, in the uh, explain second bud. Sure. So um, you have. Uh, <coughs> You have primary buds. Uh, you've, we've all driven down the road and seen a pruned vineyard, and it looks a little bit like a skeleton. You've got a cordon or something like that and a, a spur. So you've got one little little pico, little little spur sticking up, and it's got a couple buds on it. Uh, and this, when the springtime comes, that bud is going to swell, and the vine is going to start to grow, do its thing. Uh, in the past, if you had a frost and that bud was killed, um, there was no way to prevent that. There was no overhead sprinklers. There's no uh, frost protection in any way. In in, in 1890, 1896, <laughs> right? You're just gonna Mother Nature's gonna deal uh, deal you what she wishes. And the thing about Zinfandel is that if that first bud dies to frost, the second one will be fruitful most of the time. Uh, that's one of the few, if only uh, Vitis 
vinifera varietals that will be fruitful in its second bud. That's All why right, we're, we're getting a little geeky here. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, so, it's Dan, it wants, go ahead. It wants to produce Translate large, what Nova's saying. <laughs> it wants to produce a larger crop than probably the grower really needs or wants. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, the second crop is often left on the vine after you do your, har- your your main harvest. Sometime in September, October, you harvest, and then you leave the rest of it on the vine. I guess it comes back to reliability. It was a reliable vine, not necessarily you know the the highest quality, but most reliable. That makes sense. And, and that goes a long way back in the day. California Wine Country, Dan Berger. Our guest today is Nova Perel, the winemaker at Fopiano. 125 years of history in the Russian River Valley. How is yeah. harvest going quickly? At, yeah, uh, no, it, at, it, it's at, going great. You know, I feel like you know the one the one thing that you know Dan and I were talking about earlier is that the one thing the the predictability has gone out the window. Nothing, not, nothing, nothing is uh, uh, following any rules as far as the varietals and when they're going to be ripe. You know, in the past you could count on you know Pinot and Chardonnay and then Merlot and then Zinfandel and then Cabernet. And <coughs> now, now it's. Uh, no one's following the rules, so oh, yeah, it, it's, exactly. it's interesting. We got to get the grapes following the rules again, but uh, yeah. yeah, no, then everyone has talked about that. Yeah, but it's a fabulous vintage. I think that it, you know this uh, maybe not as big as you would big, like, but quality wise, great. Quality wise, I think if anyone's taking notes, I think they should probably uh, write this vintage down as probably being one, maybe maybe the best in a decade for quality. Wow. Okay.